Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today we're discussing Iris among her contemporaries, namely William Golding, Doris Lessing and Muriel Spark, and thinking about the novel form in the mid to late 20th century. In her essay, Existentialists and Mystics from 1970, which you can find it published in the collection of the same name, Murdoch classifies Golding and Spark as mystics and suggests that they attempt to, fi to uh, find and invent new religious imagery in their fiction. Murdoch knew both um, Muriel Spark and Doris Lessing quite well and was friendly, although not that close to them. And I think both were quite horrified when after her death, John Bailey published his trilogy of memoirs about her. William Golding read and reviewed uh, Murdoch's work on numerous occasions, and he was especially keen on the Black Prince, but far more to come on all of them uh, in the podcast, of course. Joining me today to discuss these wonderful writers are three experts in the field. Firstly, Dr. James Bailey. Hi, James. Hi, Miles. James is Honorary Research Fellow in English Literature at the University of Sheffield, and he's the author of the forthcoming and much anticipated Mural Sparks early fiction, Literary Subversion and Experiments with Form, which is coming out with Edinburgh University Press uh, in a month's time. He's also the co-editor with Emma Young of British uh, Women Short Story Writers, The New Woman to Now, which also came out with uh, Edinburgh University Press in 2016. And he's also the author of numerous articles in contemporary women's writing and the European Journal of English Studies. Also joining me is uh, Dr. Nicola Presley. Hello, Nicola. Hi, Miles. Hi, she's the senior lecturer in English literature at Bath Spa University, and she's published on William Golding, of course, uh, Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath, and she's currently working on a book about Plath and Anne Sexton. She's the digital media manager for William Golding Limited and manages the William Golding website. Uh, details, um, if you're listening on SoundCloud, um, in the discussion box below. And in addition, she's the assistant editor of Irish Studies Review. And also with me is uh, Dr. Nonia Williams. Hi, Nonia. Hi, Miles. Hi, thanks for being on. And um, she lectures um, in literature at the University of East Anglia. And she works on archives, experimental aesthetics, representations of gender, madness and aging. And uh, she's also written on um, Doris Lessing, of course, but Muriel Spark and Anne Quinn as well. Uh, she's the academic curator of the Doris Lessing Archive at UEA, and she's the co-editor of English, the Journal of the English Association that's uh, with Oxford University Press. She's also the co-editor of the wonderful uh, British avant-garde fiction of the 1960s, which is sitting next to me as we speak, uh, well worth getting hold of. And she's uh, also got a, uh, a special issue coming out with the Critical Quarterly uh, very soon, which is going to co-edit with Matthew Taunton, a uh, special issue on Doris Lessing at 100, and that's coming out in April this year. And it's going to be open access, which is great, so everyone listening can access it. Uh, James, should we start with you? Would you like to introduce us to Spark and um, I suppose um, the early reception of Spark's novels and also, of course, thinking to how uh, Spark is listed as a mystic um, and a kind of and a crystalline novelist by Murdoch in um, some of her essays. Um, can you talk, talk to us a little bit about that? Okay. And hi, everyone, and thanks for um, thanks for inviting me on this. It's great to be on. Um, yeah, I suppose an interesting place to start is is um, with Spark's critical reception, and I think she's a she's a, an author whose reputation really precedes her. Um, I think when people think of Spark, some of the words that come to mind are are kind of crystalline. Um, it's not uncommon to pick up one of her books and see on the cover words like um, dazzling, elegant, stiletto sharp. Um, 
and and, and it, we're in kind of encouraged as as readers to to view her works as as these kind of literary crystals, these perfectly formed, precisely engineered, uh, very concise usually uh, novels. Um, so Murdoch's distinction in against dryness between the, the journalistic and the crystalline novel. Um, the crystalline being, I think she calls it a, a kind of short uh, quasi-allegorical novel that doesn't kind of have that 19th century novels um, in-depth focus on character. It's 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 more it's more about something small, something allegorical. I think that's often been applied to Spark because for the reasons that I've mentioned, um, and I think that has its place. Um, but I think one of the difficulties there is is that people believe that there's, there's almost a singular lens to 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 look through look through the crystal of, of Sparks fiction, and that ties in quite conveniently for a lot of critics with with Sparks' uh, very well known conversion to Catholicism, which preceded her her career as a as a as a novelist. And it's almost like when you when you look at these when you look at these novels, which can be characterized by their short length, their their almost detached view of, of, of a set of characters whose deaths and future fates are kind of foretold in the first couple of chapters. It's almost like you've got this God's eye view of the world. And that's often the way that Spark's been caricatured. And there's a certain irony there because a lot of her fiction is about the the sort of struggle of characters who found themselves cast in you know one of her novels is called the public image cast in these very tightly drawn public images and that's ironically the fate that's befallen her she's she's the author of these of these perfect crystals that that have a, a godlike view and i think one of the things i hope my book does that you've mentioned is it, it looks at new ways of seeing Spark and in turn Spark's own ways of, of seeing the world. And um, I, th I think if we go back to the, the image of the crystal, it kind of looks, looks for those flaws in the crystals that, that Spark's novels deliberately put in place. You know, So for example, why is it that the, the narrator of the driver's seat knows precisely what's going to happen to the protagonist in the future, but in the present can't identify her exact age or even her hair colour, you know, there's, some, there's something slightly off about all these novels. Why is it that the narrator of The Comforters, Spark's debut novel, is at once all powerful and then is sort of overtaken by one of the characters in the novel in this kind of metafictive uh, flourish that Spark builds in. So she's doing something quite strange at every turn and it, and it almost flouts a lot of the ways in which she is uh, has been perceived and, and, and received by a lot of these critics. So I suppose one of the, the things I tried to do is, is is look for these inconsistencies and look at what Spark was really trying to do, specifically within the first 20 years of her literary career, where you can find her just going from one wild experiment to the next and really just trying out and having and having a great deal of fun, actually, kind of anarchic fun with the novel. Um, so I'm rambling, I know, but I suppose I suppose what I'm looking at is is kind of breaking breaking that crystal to to return to Murdoch's um, distinction. Yes, that's uh, it. Sounds fascinating, and uh, I'm grateful to have a, a, an advanced copy of it of, of your book. 
Do you think then that um, those who would pigeonhole her in, into any particular, whether it be crystalline or existentialist or uh, Catholic novelist, for example, are, are really missing the point of what she's trying to do with the novel form? Yeah, and I think they're missing out on a lot of a lot of the fun to be had of, of reading Spark. Um, each novel does something totally different and 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 yes there is a sort of pattern that you get with the the um one critic um beginning a review of one of her novels in the late 90s called reality and dreams uh, in the new york uh, i think it was in the new york times began began the review by saying here's the recipe for a typical muriel spark novel you know throw in an enclosed community whether it's schoolgirls or whether it's um octogenarians in her novel memento mori you know throw in um, an allusion to mysticism, throw in a, a betrayal that's going to happen down the line, and you've got a Muriel Spark novel. And there is a certain degree of truth in that you can see these patterns, but I also think she's doing something really wildly different between one text and the next. You know, some, sometimes the, sometimes the uh, characters seem very thinly drawn because she's writing about, for example, um, media culture she's writing about the sort of tabloid press in a novel like the public image or not to disturb mm. sometimes she's writing um she's writing about fascism you know in the prime of miss jean brody you know there's a reason jean brody is this kind of master puppeteer is because she's she's a she's a fascist you know so there, there are all kinds of illusions and, and all kinds of um of um you know, provocations and um, and things and things that were getting to spark at the time. You know, one of the the really satisfying things about researching in two of the big spark spark archives, as I've been calling them, the, the, her, her archives in in um, in Edinburgh and also Tulsa, is that you can see the press cuttings and you can see what was filling the notebooks as she was putting these incredibly slimline novels together. And the, the novels are slimline. But the notebooks are absolutely bursting at the seams with with press cuttings, with with her um, fascination with with particular celebrities or um, world events or the financial or financial crises, and uh, so so there's just so much more to Spark than I think has been acknowledged. And when you when you turn everything into a, a religious allegory, as as some of the early critics tended to do, I think you squeeze out so much that was preoccupying here at the time. Sure, I think this, this uh, the element of the distillation of all these materials that go into creating these these uh, these novels is um, one you thought out really well there. Um, so where, where do you see her in, in, in her sort of, um, in time, I suppose, in, in, in the literary period? How do you see her sort of reacting or interacting with, with other, other novelists? One of the, um... Well, there's, there are a few things going on. I mean, one, she had no time for the the kind of so-called angry young men, or or anyone who who uh, purported to be a, a realist. You know, she famously said, well, not so famously actually, in, in the context of my book, it's famous, but I don't think everyone knows. But she fam you know, she 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 hated that that attack that uh, C.P. Snow made on on the. Uh, on 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 the uh, the experimental novel, and she she said, you know, um, C. P. Snow claims to be a realist. I think he's a I think he's a complete fantasist because she thought the idea of realism was was a load of rubbish. You know, she mm. she, she thought she was a realist, even though she would fill her novels with ghosts and 
flying saucers and shadows that fall the wrong way but she thought that was realism because it was actually communicating something um through fiction that felt very real Mm. um but then you can also see the the intersections between her work and the french uh, anti-novel or or uh, or new novel people like alan rob grier and um uh, natalie sarot um she was fascinated by what they were doing um she was fascinated by um you know, Rob Grier's novel Jealousy, for example, or, or The Voyeur, which have these incredibly painstakingly drawn scenes um, of, you know, a centipede climbing the wall or, you know, or a woman brushing her hair. And you can see the influence of that in um, in a novel like The Driver's Seat, which has these incredibly detailed scenes of, you know, shopping or uh, or the apartment of the protagonist and the flat pack furniture, which folds out and so, so, but you know, she was doing something very different with with those devices. She wasn't aligning herself with with the anti-novelists. She was co-opting some of the strategies. So, for example, in a novel like *The Mandelbaum Gate*, um, Spark attended the Eichmann trial, the trial of Adolf Eichmann, and she folds this into her novel as a as a scene witnessed by the protagonist. But as the protagonist is watching this deathly dull. Um, trial unfold and you know famously Hannah Arendt uh, coined the term the banality of evil she um she thinks about the anti-novel she thinks about these these novels where scenes go on and on and things are described in exhaustive and exhausting detail and she makes this free association between Eichmann and uh, the writer of an anti-novel so what she's doing is she's always finding links she's never paying tribute to anyone or anything she's always finding ways into the ways into those into those movements that serve her own purposes yeah sure um, and I, I was thinking actually then when you were, when you were talking about how sort of different in some regards spark and murdoch are with murdoch you know very very much focused on wanting to bring back some of these central elements of the 19th century novel that she, she would find in dickens and henry james and and austin and yet both of them want to come at what they perceive as being reality which is fascinating and of course later in her life spark is um and becomes a becomes friendly with um with doris lessing and i'd like to bring um Nonu in at, th- at this point in time and because um, Lessing and Spark were friends and they both knew Murdoch, they, they wrote to each other about her, didn't they? Um, especially after her death and following the publication of um, John Bailey's uh, memoirs and indeed um, the film that came out in 2001. Yeah, absolutely, Miles. Um, Lessing and Spark, um, you know, their friendship really kind of solidified later on in their lives, although actually their earlier lives um, were kind of aligned. They both lived in southern Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, um, around the time of the Second World War, although they didn't know each other, um, and they started communicating really in London in the 50s and 60s, but it wasn't really till the sort of 80s, 1980s and 1990s that they really started corresponding quite frequently, and by this time Muriel Spark was living in Italy and Lessing was in London, and they wrote a lot to each other about, um, you know, the fact of being an ageing woman writer, and uh, what they saw as the sexism and ageism of the publishing industry, the demands of book tours and of going on television, and sort of what they saw as the demands of the sort of, um, the kind of 
the book tour and television appearances as a kind of setting up, a, I suppose, a sort of rivalry between them. So they were often asked to comment on each other's work. And they do write to each other about, you know, other, other female writers of a similar um, kind of generation. And, and um, Iris Murdoch is one of those writers, very much writing in her defense, feeling that her, um, her kind of literary legacy um, was being kind of compromised by the film um, and by the books. Um, and I mean, I just was thinking as, as James was talking, how, how interesting it is thinking about Lessing's writing alongside Murdoch's. For of course, Lessing isn't mentioned in Existentialist and Mystics, but um, Lessing's writing in the sort of 50s and 60s um, and beyond, very, very different from Muriel Spark. You know, huge kind of sprawling novels. Um, many of them, I guess we could categorize more as something like a novel of ideas, perhaps um, more similar in some ways to Murdoch um, in, in terms of her writing style, as you said, Miles. Um, in some ways we can see um, echoes of kind of 19th century realism. Um, but also at this time in her life, Lessing in the sort of 1950s and 60s, she was herself very engaged with Sufi mysticism. So in her own life, um, she was exploring and, and very, very engaged with um, mystical ideas, non-Western mystical ideas. Um, but these really don't, I suppose, really come into the fore in her fiction until the sort of 1970s and beyond. Um, so Lessing's quite an interesting writer, I think, in terms of how her writing um, has some similar, I suppose, um, philosophical um, um, concerns to Murdoch's, um, but it's really Spark whose writing hers seems so different from um, where this real sort of friendship develops um, later on in their lives, um, which they use to reflect back on their earlier writing and also to, to discuss their, their kind of current writing um, and how they how their writing is is sort of changing and how their writing has been perceived so as James was saying you know how uh, patronized they feel by many of the reviewers um, how Muriel Spark is furious about um, the person she calls her demonographer um, so uh, Martin Stannard writing um, his biography of her. Um, so this idea of the sort of female writer being owned um, or written about um, by another person and being somehow kind of miscast um, or misunderstood or misrepresented is something they're very concerned about when it comes to their writing about Murdoch. Mm. I'd like to pick up on something that you, you mentioned brief, uh, briefly about um, female novelists because I suppose um, for all of the authors that we're talking about today, they all have one particular novel, I suppose, that sort of stands out um, amongst their other works. And, and I, for most people, it, it would be The Golden Notebook uh, for, for Lessing. And I suppose reading that, and um, I haven't read it in a little while, um, reading that, and it, it, do you think that that is, um, I suppose, a, a good example of what her fiction is actually like and how... Um, she fits into the literary period of the time? I, th I mean, I suppose in part, I think she's, um, she was said of, of that novel, The Golden Notebook, that you really only could have been written at the time it was written. It mm. really is very reflective of that sort of post-war period. Um, 
Um, and but the difficulty I think with Lessing is that um, critics have often found it really hard to kind of categorize or group her writing. So her kind of earlier work, which is you know thinking about um, life in southern Rhodesia and, and partly kind of based there, um, the, the sort of children of violence series, um, and then you know through something like the golden notebook um you know famously kind of very experimental in its form um and then moving on towards sort of you know um speculative fiction um again huge sprawling novels thinking about um technology and mm. and sort of space travel and the sort of um eco crisis and the sort of state of the planet um, so I think one thing that's been difficult for Lessing in terms of her, I suppose, her kind of reputation, although obviously, um, you know, she, she was awarded the Nobel Prize and, and, she, and she does have a kind of status, I think, as a 20th century writer. But, but I think that she's, she's a bit slippery for some of those categories. Um, because, because she moves she, across genres so easily in her work. Absolutely, absolutely. And she talks... Um, in the, in the preface to the Golden Notebook um, and also elsewhere about, you know, on the one hand being incredibly influenced by writers like um, Virginia Woolf and D.H. Lawrence um, and some of the modernists. And on the other hand, really, you know, being frustrated with modernism. Um, and, and she writes um, a, an essay, A Small Personal Voice, which is very much about the sort of, I suppose, um, you know, the pull, pull between on the one hand experimentalism, on the other hand, kind of the realist tradition um, and, you know, being frustrated with both types of writing um, and wanting a writing, I suppose, wanting um, novels to be sort of socially responsible, but despairing at the idea of the sort of communist novel where form um, was seen as being, you know, sort of kind of getting in the way of, of a kind of political or social message. Um, so she's, she's interested in trying to kind of navigate at mid-century, um, you know, different elements um, of, experimentalism, realism, and, and that kind of social conscience that she thought was so important. Yes, and that, and that movement as, as well, I suppose into the 80s and, and into the 90s when she, when she moved genre um, significantly, I, I, I would say, do you think that that sort of heralds another period in, in, her, in, her, in her writing life? Well, absolutely. And that's the period of her writing life that really was influenced by her um, involvement with Sufi mysticism. Mm. Um, you know, a real sort of shift for her in terms of her personal kind of belief system, um, you know, practicing of, of meditation and her kind of deep immersion in, um, you know, thinking about kind of, you know, Sufi history um, and, and becoming very interested in, in writing, um, you know, short kind of parables and, and, you know, writing in the style of some of the, the Sufi work that she was kind of reading. Um, and, and I think that sort of shifts her perspective from a, from a sort of narrative perspective that's much kind of closer to individual human experience to a perspective that's sort of, you know, looking at the whole planet or, or, you know, a kind of a much broader perspective, thinking about humankind from, from a, a greater distance. This interests me very much because I, although I haven't read a, a huge amount of her, her later work, it seems to me that she's actually writing about some of the same 
kinds of ideas and, and having the same sorts of thoughts that, that Murdoch is doing in her very late novels in the in the 1980s. So uh, perhaps that's something for, for, uh, for me to, to think about later. What I want to do now is um, to bring uh, Nicola in. Thank, thank you, Nonia, for, for that. Uh, Nicola, let's go back to, uh, to 1954, uh, a really important year for, um, for the novel form. You've got um, the first um, uh, book of uh, The Lord of the Rings. You've got um, Lucky Jim, you've got Murdoch's Under the Net, but you've also, of course, got um, Lord of the Flies, which in some regards is, um, I think, still seen um, across the world as, um, you know, as such a central text for the for the um, 20th century novel um, and for 20th century literary culture as well. Golding is of a, a slightly older generation um, than Spark, uh, Murdoch and, um, and Lessing. Could you say a little bit about his um, early fictional development and also where you see him um, fitting in um, to sort of the literary culture of the, the 50s and 60s? Yes, thanks uh, very much, Miles, for inviting me um, to join in. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for coming on. Um, so, yeah, as you say, 1954 um, is very funny as well. It's Lord of the Rings, the, 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 which obviously becomes this, this text that sort of haunts Golding with people getting it mixed up with flies mm. I think, uh, in several very important occasions as well. Um, so Flies is published in 1954. The story of the publication of Lord of the Flies is quite famous and I, I don't expect I, I need to, to tell it. But it's not Golding's first publication, of course. So his very first publication is his book of poems in 1934, now out of print. Um, and really rare as well. Incredibly rare. Yeah. And uh, he actually used to destroy copies that he found in bookshops, um, which is a shame actually, because it's very, very Did he buy them first or did he just- um, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I do hope so. Yeah. Um, the poems of 1934 are very much of the 19th century, one would say there's really no indication of, of modernist poetry. And after that volume, he didn't publish again um, until obviously 1954. He wrote several novels after the war. Um, so I think his career was really disrupted by the war, obviously. He went to war in 1940, where he remained until 1945. When he returned from the war, he went into teaching again which uh, there's always mixed um, mixed views about his teaching um, and obviously flies went through various publishers and then Charles Monteith rescued it and I mean it is the novel that Golding is known for I, I you know I think people may be hard-pressed to name all of them um, so it, it really it's tricky I think when a novel so overshadows everything else you do because you're always known for, for this, this particular piece of art. And I think he struggled with that for his entire career, actually. Um, mm. yeah. His favorite novel of his was The Inheritors, which comes out a year later. And probably my favorite as well, actually, I'd ha I have to say. Um, so this is hugely important. It's the same year as Murdoch's Under the Net. And as you mentioned, Golding is a bit older, not massively, but I think it made quite a difference. So he's born in 1911. So he is probably of another generation. And by the time Flies is published, he is 42, which is re relatively old in publishing your first novel. We all mm. know the bright young things, the novelist under 30. And so actually when Charles Monteith received 
the manuscript and went to meet Goldie and he expected a kind of young clergyman and was met with this slightly grizzled schoolmaster. So I think that him and Murdoch, and they did meet, we don't know very much about it, but Judy Goldin has confirmed that they did meet. And certainly he was a really big fan of Murdoch. He struggled with contemporary fiction. He, he didn't read a lot initially, and then was tasked with reviewing an awful lot of books as he became more famous. So he quite famously, I think, misread A Severed Head by Murdoch for one of his reviews, which John Carey talks about. He thought, um, I think he was a, a little bit shocked by some parts of it. However, when he compiled a reading list for his um, American college tour in 1961, the only woman writer he included in that was Murdoch's Under the Net. So we can see from that that he was certainly affected by her work. Um, in his archive are innumerable Murdoch novels. Where does he fit? I mean, I think he's, he's really tricky. I think similarly to indeed Spark, Blessing and Murdoch, it's really hard to pin him down to a particular genre. He writes in all genres all the time. We start off with um, Lord of the Flies and allegory, dystopian fiction, moves to something like the pyramid, which is his attempt at social realism. And then we've got the, the Austin pastiche, pastiche, and I mean that in a, in a very complimentary term of rites of passage, um, all the way up to the, the posthumous novel, The Double Tongue. So, he is incredibly difficult to pin down as to what kind of writing he is. Um, and recently, there's been quite a lot of talk about him as a science fiction writer, particularly classifying The Inheritors as a science fiction novel, um, which I really quite agree with, actually. So, do you he think he would tricky. have, um, sorry, do you think he would have um, objected to Murdoch classifying him as a mystical novelist or a mystic? Do you know, it's really funny. I think he almost classifies himself as that. Mm. And I, um, if, you, if you'll indulge me, I've got a quote from him, um, from sure. his essay, Belief and Creativity. And he says, what man is, whatever man is under the eye of heaven, that I burn to know, and that I would endure knowing. So he is continually concerned with the human condition, but he seems unable, I think, at times to extract that from there being a sense of a spiritual world, whether that is a kind of very Christian God, or whether he's talking about gods or some other plane. It's more difficult, I think, to, to take him away from that. So reading the essay uh, by Murdoch was a, a very illuminating. Interestingly, though, she, she wrote that before the novel Darkness Visible. Yes, the novel that you'd never discuss in public. Exactly. Yeah. And I think Darkness Visible is, I'd love to know, and I, I'm, I'm sure that there's no chance of ever knowing whether Murdoch read that, because, and I, I'm going to assume that most try, people... Try and find out. <laughs> yeah, see if you can find out. I will. I, I'm assuming many people listening won't have read Darkness Visible. And they really it's, should. It's amazing. It it's is amazing. amazing. It's, yeah. And it's incredibly hard to explain, so I'm not really going to try but really just to say it's told in three parts, one from the point of view of Matty, who is essentially a Christ figure. And then the second part is told from the point of view of a young woman called Sophie. Now Matty is, 
what is he? Nobody knows. His entire refrain is, what am I for? Which, of course, completely speaks to what Murdoch is talking about. Um, it's very mystical. It's very religious. But then we've got the problem of Sophie, whose um, story is the second part of the novel. And Sophie certainly seems to have a power. Um, she calls it her weirdness. But that weirdness only comes from within herself, not from any outside force. So it seems to me that this novel speaks directly to what Murdoch was talking about in that sense that the mystical novel is both newer and more old fashioned. Because we've got here Golding's Matty absolutely being characteristic of this kind of battle for self, but related to religion. But then we've got Sophie also trying to make sense of the human condition, but with no other forces just within herself. So in that regard, and I think this is where the, the Golding problem comes in, is that when even when he classifies himself as a particular way, or when other people like Murdoch try to classify him within the same novel, he completely blows it apart mm. and changes how he how he views things. Um, he was always in his early career very kind of against literary interpretation. So with Pincher Martin, for example, which would you know would fit very neatly, I think, into um, into some of Murdoch's definitions, he said he's in purgatory, full stop, essentially. Um, but of course, as we know, there are multiple ways to read that novel. And as his career developed, he began to, I think, accept the fact that the author could not control everything. Um, so I think that Murdoch has really picked up on something about his writing, but I think he is much more complex than that, um, even within these novels. And, I, and James says something really interesting about Spark that the early that her early critics turned her work into religious allegory and I think that's been done with Golding over and over again mm. and of course as again as James pointed out with Spark that leads us to miss quite a lot in his work. Yes I'd certainly agree that I haven't read the the C trilogy at the end of his career but I think I've read most 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 of the others and you can see there's definite kind of experiment um, elements of the experimental going on in his in his early fiction he kind of settles down i don't know if this this is your sort of vision of, of golding as well he kind of settles down um with the pyramid and, and some of the other novels around that time and then you know moves again into in um with the with the sea trilogy in, in his um in his very later um later works um james do you want to come in and um say a little bit i think now we've um sort of established that for each of our novelists that we're discussing, and, and oddly enough, Murdoch in Existentialist Mystics in an early draft actually placed herself in that in that category of mystic alongside Patrick White and Muriel Spark and um, William Golding and, and others, and Graham Greene as well. Um, James, let's come back to you because I think um, having listened to Nonny and, and, and to Nicola, there's probably some elements um, that we can sort of uh, consider um, in relation to Spark's novels. And one thing I'm, I'm I'm really interested in, perhaps um, our listeners are, um, is both that she, she writes in this very condensed form, but that also, I suppose, we've already mentioned um, the prime Miss Jean Brodie, but like Lord of the Flies, that also hangs over her career a little bit, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it certainly does. And you can see you can see why. I mean, I mentioned that that kind of typical spark recipe before, which she's associated with. And and there's a lot of truth in that. And I think the problem with Jean Brody is is almost, I mean, it is I think it was Zadie Smith recently said it's the perfect novel. She says Zadie Smith was saying that, you know, when she teaches creative writing, she just gives this to her students every year to read. It's like, you know, you can read it, you can read it in a day and it's it's kind of perfect and, and it kind of sets out its stall right at the beginning. It tells you how these schoolgirls are going to end up and how Miss Brodie is going to be betrayed. And you read the rest of the novel waiting to get to something you know is going to happen and, and, and kind of fascinated by how all the cogs are going to, it's almost like a, the, a, a kind of um, a Swiss watch of a novel. It's, it's, it's just perfect in, in, in how everything sort of aligns and, and works together. So I understand why it's the most famous. And of course, there's a famous uh, film adaptation with Maggie Smith. There's countless um, theatrical adaptations. It's it's perfect for quotes, you know, the, the creme de la creme, you know, people <laughs> say it today, you know, it, it, it's, it's an iconic, you know, it's an iconic novel. And, and so I suppose it's no surprise that it's her most famous. I think, where I'm more interested, I think where Spark was far more interested was was when you sort of you sort of break away and you and you do something you you introduce something deeply odd into a novel. So, for example, I mentioned The Driver's Seat, a novel which works in a similar way. It tells you what's going to happen, but what it tells you is so deeply disturbing. And when you reach the end and you know how it happens it still doesn't provide satisfaction. So, you're left with more questions. So for anyone who hasn't read The Driver's Seat, which Spark claimed to be her best novel, um, she said, it's my best novel and it's the creepiest. And I think the two things work together for Spark. You know, the creepiest, the creepiness leads to the the fact that, it, that it's her best. Um, for anyone who hasn't read it, it's, it's a novel that tells you within the first, uh, I think it's by the third chapter, that the protagonist, Lisa, will be found dead the next morning and and you so so spark went against our kind of current uh, culture of spoiler alerts you know don't tell me what's going to happen she will tell you what's going to happen within the first few pages and then it's 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 what what leads to that so what i'm saying is you know she gave us all the components with the premise Jean brady of 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 this kind of perfect novel and then she spent <laughs> she spent the novels the, the kind of 18 or so novels uh, and short various short stories that followed um sort of breaking that that formula and giving you things that were just a bit off so you know the mandelbaum gate which is this huge novel in comparison to to the slimline mm. prime of miss jean brody um not to disturb which is even shorter than the prime of miss jean brody um the hothouse by the east river which is just totally mystifying everything about it is, is a puzzle. You know, why are these characters in this overheated New York apartment? Why does someone's shadow fall the wrong way? Why is uh, why are silkworms hatching out of a character's breasts at one point? You know, it's just bizarre. Um, and I think there was a degree to which Spark was almost hitting the uh, the self destruct button on this on this pristine figure of Muriel Spark. You know, when you read when you read what came later, she was not content to write the same novel over and over again. She was really wanted to continue to deviate from that formula, um, and I think she was happy doing so. Yeah. 
One, one thing I also want to pick, pick up on, as you, as you said, James, the um, the novels bar one, The Mandelbaum Gate, which I, I read for the first time last year, and I, I can't say I enjoyed it. Um, I, I I do think that, that Spark is best when she's writing in the, in the short novel slash novella form. And of course, you know, well known for very short stories as well. Did she ever want to expand that, that fictional universe with, within within the, within the novel? I mean, with Murdoch's fiction, for example, they start off as quite regularly sized novels of 300 pages or so. By the time she gets to the end of her career, they're getting up towards 600, these enormous baggy monsters. Or do you think that she, she found her niche and, and she stuck to it? Um, well, The Man of Gate was, I think was, it, it bugged her that she'd never, she'd never written a big novel before that stage and she would often quip that um, she felt that her readers weren't getting their money's worth because of the amount of kind of pence per page of one of her novels compared to you know someone who's writing something a bit chunkier um, so it always bugged her that she that, that she hadn't written her, her big novel um, and it's important to say the ones that preceded the Mandelbaum Gate she was off but she was you know there was a stage in her career in the the late 50s early 60s where she was writing two novels a year you know she was just once she you know she was 39 when she when she first got published as a novelist and from that point on she was just writing in very intense bursts um i think the prime Team brody was written in six weeks for example it's kind of staggering um so the mandelbaum gate was her chance to really delve into writing um writing something larger and she spent i think two and a half years on that novel and as I mentioned before it encompassed um, a year and a trip to Jerusalem to, to, to witness the Eichmann trial and travel uh, around and explore her own heritage so this was a big personal project she hated the process of spending that long writing um, she called it her Mrs Tolstoy period and she didn't want to revisit it um, and she got so bored writing the novel that she decided to finish the the Mandelbaum Gate it has two two parts to finish the second part um, in a matter of weeks. As uh, she quipped later on that the experience of writing the second half by hand uh, over you know so intensely to get to get the thing done uh, was so painful not only mentally but physically that her doctor had had to help her straighten her fingers out <laughs> because wow. she'd been clutching the pencil writing and writing writing so she didn't want to return to that style she she what she she said afterwards uh, i will keep it short after that and you know it's no coincidence that straight after the mandelbaum gate she entered this period of her of her fiction which for me is the most fascinating where she was inspired by those french novelists like rob grier and she was committed to writing very short novels um so you have the public image in 1968 up to um the mid 70s we have a novel the novel uh, the abyss of crew uh very short fiction and she was already writing short novels before that but these are very short um and to answer your question about expansiveness uh, in in worlds i think she reached a point after that you get novels like the takeover territorial rights um these kind of semi-autobiographical novels like Loitering with Intent and A Far Cry from Kensington, where she was keeping the form short, but you read a sentence of those and she packs more into a sentence than some writers pack into, you know, five, six pages. They are so um, brilliantly um, concise and say so much. And I think she'd arrived at a bit of a sweet spot at that stage where she had the balance between uh, real kind of flavour but something that was still very, very concise.
Sure. And how does she feel about um, about feminism as well, and uh, feminism within novels, and um, the political novel? Um, I asked Martin Stannard, um, Nonia mentioned Stannard um, a while ago, and I asked I asked him this question because I was really interested to know from from their kind of conversations and correspondence, and he said that she wasn't a fan of any kind of sloganeering uh, or, or any kind of any kind of militant stance. Um, and that, that was his response to that. I think when you when you you hear a comment like that and when and when you talk about that kind of critical reception, that kind of critical caricature that I mentioned at the outset, it's uh, very easy to think, well, she certainly wasn't a feminist then. She this certainly wasn't one of her concerns. But when you read the novels themselves, um, I mentioned the public image all about an actress trapped in her in her role as as, as the the tiger lady she's known, uh, or you read something like the Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, um, the Driver's Seat about this woman seeking agency. I think um, you can be a bit more sympathetic and you can read between lines on what was preoccupying Spark. So whether she considered herself a feminist or not so many of her novels are about women in particular trying to seek out uh, agency or being um, being caught within this kind of narrow public image. Um, one of the novels that I look at in my book is Not to Disturb. Um, when Spark was researching this novel, she was absolutely fascinated by uh, an Italian uh, scandal which involved a woman named Anna Fallerino, who was not only uh, murdered by her husband uh, and forced before she died into all kinds of, uh, of kind of awful um, sexual uh, games for his, for his gratification, but after she died, the press um, drew out all kinds of sordid details uh, and turned her into this caricature. And this figure fascinated Sparta to the extent that she collected books and diaries by this uh, by this woman, all kinds of press cuttings. And when you read Not to Disturb, which is all about a group of publicists and media savvy servants trying to, to capitalise on, on a death they know is about to happen, it, it really sheds a new light on that. This isn't just a kind of uh, fun and games with fiction and, 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 um, and, and trying to kind of tease the author, the, the reader with suspense. There's actually something deeply corrupt going on in, in the house in which the novel's set. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, she, she maybe wouldn't consider herself a, a feminist or wouldn't align herself with any, any kind of stance, politically speaking or socially speaking, but it is there in, in the text. You only need to look. Yeah, and you can see it, you can see it being being written out in there, and, and and of course, you know, engaged with it in her her work on on Mary Shelley and uh, and, and elsewhere. I'm sure, Nonia. Of course, with um, Doris Lessing, it's quite clear that she she's held up as you know a, as a, a a really important feminist uh, writer. But is there something also of the political to her, uh, and also? Perhaps you could say a little bit more about some of her early work and how it was in, inspired by um, by her life in uh, in southern Rhodesia. Yeah, I mean, she, Lessing's interesting again when it comes to the sort of you know question of feminism. So, um, the Golden Notebook published in 1962 and then sort of hailed as a feminist classic, and Lessing felt you know kind of co-opted and grabbed by the feminist movement in a way that she 
thought was really problematic. So she said that the book had been claimed as being a kind of Marxist, kind of communist kind of text, political text, that it was also claimed as a kind of, um, you know, colonial or post-colonial text. It was claimed as a feminist text. Um, and it was claimed as a text as about kind of, um, you know, madness and psychosis. Um, and she's, you know, she sort of famously pushed back against all those readings and rejected them. Um, and really was quite critical of, in particular, the sort of feminist claims about the text. But, um, you know, as James has just been saying about Spark, I mean, when you read Lessing's work, it's clear that she's very interested in the female experience. The thing that she didn't like about some of the sort of feminist readings of her, of her books, and in particular, the Golden Notebook was this idea that um, it was about a kind of war between the sexes and it was kind of um, a, a divisive political position. Um, and it, it, when you read the Golden Notebook and the kind of complexity with, with which the kind of um, male-female sexual relationships are kind of thought about, um, you can see that what Lessing is, is rejecting is this sort of divisive or kind of combative position um, and, and wanting to think in a more complex way, I guess, about, about kind of gender relations than she saw um, in some of the sort of feminist arguments. But she's clearly interested in, in particularly in female experience, in the female experience of aging. So I'm thinking from the Golden Notebook onwards in particular, um, and also in her correspondence, this preoccupation with um, you know, specifically being a female writer and the way in which she's kind of cast um, in that role in particular ways um, and, and being kind of very cross about that. Um, so, and do, and do so, her beliefs change or develop or her political opinions change over time? Her political opinions definitely changed over time. So when she was living in um, southern Rhodesia, um, and um, you know, she was she was married very early for the first time. Um, you know, in her kind of early twenties, she's already kind of married, um, and and part of leftist circles in southern Rhodesia. And the and the, you know, the only way really of being kind of leftist um, in leftist kind of political clubs was by a, a kind of aligning um, herself with kind of communist party. She saw it as the only way to sort of fight the kind of apartheid system really, the only kind of option for, for standing against that system, which she sort of hated so much. Um, and when she came to London um, in, in um, 1950, 51, um, just shortly after that, a few years afterwards, she did actually join the communist party for a short period of time, but always had a really ambivalent relationship towards communism and always really kind of unsure about whether she wanted to align herself with it or not um, and, and very quickly left the party um, in the kind of um, you know mid um, mid 50s so was only really a member for a few years um, and and then became very sort of anti-communist and aligns herself with um, kind of Afghan um, political um, kind of um, freedom um, and um, you know starts to kind of look towards yeah the Middle East this is partly when she's kind of interested in Sufi mysticism partly looking I think all the time Lessing is looking for new 
kind of political kind of humanist causes um, to align herself with, um, in, you know, political causes that she sees as kind of fighting for justice in various ways, but she's always moving on. Um, uh, and would you, know, you always classify her as a socialist then throughout her life? I think that it's a in very broad brushstroke, isn't it? But you, you know what you know. Yeah, what I'm I mean, I think I think in her in her later in her later life, um, some of her political opinions become much more conservative with a small c, um, and um, you know her relationship with the establishment changes quite a lot, um, and. You know, I think that's that complexity is partly to do with that idea of being, you know, a British subject born and growing up in southern Rhodesia. And so she had a very complicated relationship with empire, with British politics. Um, and I think that that complex relationship um, is something that, yeah, sort of changes her attitudes as, as she gets older. She has this sort of love hate relationship with with Britain um, yeah. and and even with London. Yeah. Nicola, could you say a little bit about um, Golding's politics as well and how they changed throughout his life? And, and do, you, do you feel that they, um, his, his stance on, on, on those particular areas come into his fiction at all, as, as they do um, so much within, um, within Lessing's work? I think that um, the, most, the most important thing about Golding's politics came from the experience in the war. Yeah. So that just shaped, I think, everything that he ever wrote. Um, certainly he, he kept some, I think, some of his political views quite close. Um, but his biggest preoccupation politically wise was about social class. He felt inadequate for, for his entire life. And that was partly growing up in Marlborough in Wiltshire. And of course, you've got the very, very famous Marlborough College. Mm. And then you had Marlborough Grammar School, which is where Golding went in fact, where his father taught. And in a lot of his other writing, not his fiction, um, except for one particular novel, which I'll mention, but he writes about that. When he did the, um, the South Bank show, he told Melvin Bragg that he was well aware that there were children he should not play with, but also that there were other parents telling their children not to play with him. So he had this really strong sense of inequality with class. This comes out very much in the pyramid, which is, I think certainly it's fair to say semi-autobiographical in terms of the experience of stillborn, which is essentially Marlborough transported elsewhere. And we can see this theme of class, this theme of not quite fitting in and also shame throughout his novels in, in Rites of Passage, for example, obviously Reverend Collie literally dies of shame. And that is this, this kind of sense of he doesn't fit, despite the fact that he's a man of God, he doesn't fit with, um, with the other passengers. We see Piggy in Lord of the Flies, who, um, who is, whose speech obviously marks him out immediately. So while Golding maybe didn't write that much about politics he always wrote about class he always mm. wrote about the dangers of the totalitarianism and, and he writes know, a lot about we, hubris as well doesn't he i'm just thinking of the spire and the paper men there's, there's a lot of that going on in those two novels i think yeah absolutely that paper men's a really um, interesting one very little known actually 
Um, I'd be amazed if any listeners had read the paper, man, um, in terms of, of kind of where it maybe sits. I think they should. Women. I think they should. I like it. I, I do. I think it. I think it's funny. It's, and I think actually reading that as an academic is is really good fun in terms of how we how we are desperate for the papers of our authors. Yes, it's a bit near to the knuckle for those of you who are working in archives or working <laughs> yes. with personal correspondence. It's um, yeah, yeah, it's um, an, an interesting one certainly if people want to uh, think about that and uh, pick that up. Yeah, James, do you want to say a little something about um, Murdoch's point against dryness? Uh, coming back to that, arming us against consolation, um, and perhaps we could think as well as we as we come towards the end of our um, our discussion. Perhaps we could all reflect on for the authors that we're we're close to what um, what literature they they saw literature's um, purpose was in in the twentieth century, um, certainly post Second World War. James, do you want to um, start with those sorts of thoughts? Sure. So I, I was just I was just thinking before before this this conversation about about against dryness and, and rereading it after quite a quite a while actually. But Murdoch makes that point about literature being something that can arm us against consolation and fantasy. I think it's useful to think about that in relation to Spark um, and her own um, real distaste for, for for any kind of literature that, that went in for sentimentality as a form of, of consolation or, or yeah a kind of consolatory fiction. So um, in 1970 she delivered a lecture at the um, I think it was the American Academy of Letters uh, and she called this lecture the desegregation of art. Um, and in this, in this she, she, she recommends that what she calls effective writing, uh, such as her own, um, ought to possess um, everything that, that what she called the literature of sentiment uh, didn't do. So, so she, she, she goes in for this, this thing she calls the literature, literature of sentiment and emotion or socially conscious art. She says it isn't achieving its ends or illuminating our lives anymore. And in its place, she advocates for what she calls a less impulsive generosity, a less indignant representation of social injustice, and, and this is the, more, the most important thing, a more deliberate cunning, a more derisive undermining of what is wrong. And she concludes by saying, it's the art of ridicule that could, quote, penetrate to the marrow and paralyze its object, leaving a salutary, a salutary scar in its wake. So this idea of of ridicule being the way to go, being the thing that will really have an effect if you want to tackle any kind of injustice through writing. And I think the idea of the scar is really important because a scar is um, can often be a, you know, a mark of severance of some kind. And when you think of Spark's work, more than more than the crystalline, more than anything like that, more than the, the Catholic com uh, comic satire, what really, uh, sticks in my mind is this idea of severance, this idea of detachment. So, you know, what does it mean to read a novel where you already know the end? What does it mean to read a novel where you're not given uh, an insight into the character's emotions? What does it mean to watch a play when the characters are, are, are breaking out a role, like in her play, Doctors of Philosophy, and actually tearing up the stage? There's always some kind of distance going on with Spark, but in a funny way, um, that can 
actually work in the opposite way and bring you in more, bring you inside these weird worlds, being held at a remove sometimes can be incredibly intimate. Um, and I think that's that's the strange, that's the strange contradiction with Spark. She's against sentiment, she's against uh, she's against these things, but almost like what I was saying before about, about feminism, in a strange way, you're 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 held up close to the plight of some of these characters who are distanced from themselves, distanced from society, uh, or occupying these kind of hollow shells, shells of public images. Um, so, you know, it, it is interesting. Spark does all that without once telling you how awful the characters' lives are, are or how awful they feel. There's, there's something very inventive and very strange going on. Yeah. Nonia, do you see Lessing's work um, in her dealing with the same kinds of issues or is she coming at literature and indeed at, at art more generally in, in a in a very different way i think i think she's coming at it from a slightly different angle the thing i always like about um sparks desegregation of art um position is this idea you know i think she says in it um, James, forgive me if you quoted this, but I think she says, you know, irony is the only honourable weapon we have left. And it's really important to spark this kind of position against sentimentality. And I think Lessing is, is very different in her writing, is that, in fact, her writing often seems or has been read as very heavy going, very serious, you know, a little bit kind of po-faced. Um, it does have a, an ironic position, um, but it isn't kind of witty writing in the same way that Sparks might be read as. Uh, and I was just thinking back to um, Lessing's essay I mentioned earlier, The Small Personal Voice, which is 1957, so just before Against Dryness by Murdoch. And actually Lessing's thinking about similar questions about, you know, what kinds of art form um, can speak to the kind of mid-century moment and to kind of, you know, contemporary experience. Um, and she's suspicious of kind of, you know, um, newspaper writing, media writing, um, and, and insists on this idea that the novelist uh, can speak to the individual reader person to person, individual to individual, in, in a kind of, um, in a meaningful way, in a way that is a, is a kind of, is, you know, has an essential kind of humanity to it. Um, and I think that, you know, Lessing does kind of take literature and her literary kind of purpose and author very, very sort of seriously. And so in that way, I suppose we might read her as coming from a very different position from Spark, but I think she's concerned with the same questions of trying to, you know, communicate the kind of horror and the turmoil, I suppose, um, of, um, you know, of, of the aftermath of the Second World War. Um, you, so that, so I think there's this sort of caught up in maybe similar moment and think, but thinking about the sort of their responses are very, are very different in some ways. Yes, that's that's fascinating because I think thinking about Golding as well, he's doing this, the same sorts of things with with flies and then inheritors, and maybe even with with Pincher Martin. This idea of dealing with the the, the you know the, the the fallout post in Europe post the Second World War. Uh, Nicola, is is that also how you see Golding as kind of holding a mirror up to society and, and thinking about these issues? And do you see his kind of vision of arts is related to uh, what James and Nonny have just said about? 
about Spark and Lessing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when he talked about writing, though, he would often use examples from poetry rather than novels. Um, in his Nobel lecture, he talks uh, he talks uh, a lot about poetry, and, and he always says poetry says it best, which I always think is, a, is an odd thing for a novelist, although of course a poet at times to say. I was really interested just to pick up on something Nonia said about Lessing, which is the way she's been seen as a, a quite a serious writer, and I think I think Golding has had much the same um, much the same levelled at him. Um, possibly until Rites of Passage, which um, was widely seen as, as comedic. So this, I, I guess, you know, this sense of pessimism all the time, which is, is of course, partly set against the post-war period and what happened. And then even Darkness Visible itself is set against the terrorism of, of the 1970s. So, yeah, he, I think he does absolutely hold this mirror up. But I also think that there's a lot of hope in his novels, and I think he found hope in writing and in novels. And I think that's why he turns to something like the Sea Trilogy in kind of later life and then in, with the double tongue right at the end. So, yeah, I think, again, slightly different, he sees it slightly differently to Lessing and Spark, but I think there's a, there's a real kind of link between these writers in the work that they're doing. That's fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's been been great over the last hour or so to kind of draw out these threads and actually to see how much, though the, our authors are working on, you know, very, in very different ways, very different forms, you know, maybe slipping between genres, maybe writing in, in a particular way, but actually a, a good deal of the concerns of the, uh, um, of, the of, of post Second World War fiction, uh, we, we're seeing coming out, um, you know, in, in so many of their so many of their works. It's um, it's been a fascinating discussion. Sadly, we're coming towards the end of our podcast, but uh, and our time together. But what I'd like to do before we uh, before we leave is um, uh, do please suggest um, a uh, just one text I think by your by your author that we've been discussing um, today um, that everybody should read to really get a a, a flavour or a sense of um, of their work. Uh, James, let's start with you and Spark. Um, I'm going to say the driver's seat. I think. For many people, the the Prime Minister Jean Brodie is is the kind of is, is classic spark, and I think I think they'd be right to think that. But there is something about the driver's seat that I think is unforgettable. That, that first experience of reading it, and like I said, there's a there's a spoiler up front with the novel, but that actually doesn't take anything away from how kind of weirdly gripping and strange and 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 memorable that novel is, and and how it, and how it kind of leaves you feeling right at the end. Um, and I would I would just quickly say it's a bit, it's a bit shameless, but in in the book I've written that something unexpected happened, which was that Sparks Estate approved um, approved permission for me to quote from the manuscripts, um, which which doesn't really happen with Sparks. I was was really surprised to get that, and and some of the the, the chapters on the driver's seat the. the, the the things I've been able to quote from conversations that didn't make it into the novel between Lisa and her father, uh, parts where the narrator stops narrating and kind of questions the, the, the narrator's own limits of, of interpretation um, have, have just been absolutely fascinating to to look at in, in relation to the published text and, and what Spark leaves out. So it's, it's just a novel that I've 
been on a, a bit of a strange uh, twisty journey with and um, it would be wrong for me to suggest anything else after after reading it so closely for so long yeah so one of the one of the, the thrills of working on a uh, an academic book like that is to get get involved with archives and manuscripts and uh, trace the development from the from the holographs right the way through to the published published uh, novel yeah and then certainly my own reading of the driver's seat um last year it's such a it made me feel quite queasy it had a, a real physical effect on me and um yeah as you say that kind of the the, the change of the of the structure and letting letting the reader know what's going to happen at the end quite early on it's a it's very strange novel. but i absolutely agree with you it's um it's a fascinating one Nonny, how about you one for one for lessing um so I just wanted to add my agreement that I've, I agree that The Driver's Seat is my absolute favourite Spark novel. I think it's extraordinary. Um, with Lessing, I think I would, I, I had the kind of interesting experience when we were working on the Lessing Centenary project exhibition and various things of working with some local reading groups. Um, and many of the, the attendants to the reading groups said that, they had tried and really not got on with the Golden Notebook um, and some of Lessing's longer works. So um, I always recommend starting with um, The Grass is Singing. So mm, that's her yeah. first published novel, which is just the most extraordinary piece of writing, um, you know, set in Southern Rhodesia, incredibly taught writing, incredibly sparse. Um, I think you can see the influence of um, kind of modernism on her writing. I think that it's it's a real sort of gem because it is so condensed, um, but you can, some of the sort of themes and preoccupations of her writing are there right from the start, but it's just much more manageable than some of the sort of later baggy monsters, you know, <laughs> similar to Murdoch. Lessing's novels get kind of longer and longer. And I think The Grass is Singing is, is the best one to start with. Yeah, I think I'd agree with you as well. I think that's a, a fantastic novel and uh, yeah, listeners should pick it up. And of course it's very widely available um, as uh, as both the driver's seat and um, Ross singing um, are. And uh, Nicola, finally, finally to you, one, one for Golding. Well, I think I've talked about it the most. So I think I ought to say Darkness Visible yeah. as the one to, to read. The, the opening is absolutely astonishing. Um, it's almost as if you can feel the flames coming from the pages, the way it starts. It's unexpected, confusing, but in... Disturbing. <laughs> disturbing. Mm. It's, it's all things. And it's also incredibly modern because of... Not exactly when he wrote it, but I think... You think about Lord of the Flies, which can often be kind of universal. The Inheritors takes us back to uh, Neanderthal times. And this ab absolutely kind of takes place in, in modern day. And I think all of the ideas expressed in it, the events in it, you know, make it a novel that could be published today. So yeah. yes, darkness visible, but be prepared. Yeah, it certainly is disturbing at times. Yes, some of the characters are perhaps not particularly nice, we should say. Indeed. Yes. Um, but no, I, I, I would agree with you. I think it's a, um, a, um, a wonderful novel and um, yeah, highly recommended. Well, thank you to you all for, for joining me. Thank you to James Bailey, to uh, Nicola Presley and to Narnia Williams. And um, thank you um, for listening. Next time on the podcast, uh, we'll be discussing Iris Murdoch, uh, music and singing. And I'll be joined by Gillian Dooley and Ellen Svenby. Hope you've enjoyed it.